The business of culture, the culture of business, policy, media and technology, investors, authors, creatives, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I remember the number of times when you know something was offered first to the broadcast and I was sitting over digital and they were like, you guys can take the scraps. Uh, you can take the extras. And I was like, well, that that's not, you know, we need to have just as good quality if we're going to convince people to watch it. You mentioned the vulture capital organizations that buy up not only individual newspapers, but whole chains and then impose severe cost cutting. They sell off the real estate. They uh, fire the more expensive staffers and then they turn it into a, uh, a money machine. How the network news, venerable, proud, profitable, is kicking and screaming its way through digital disruption. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show. A shout out to our radio partners, WVTF, Virginia Public Radio across the Commonwealth, WERA in Northern Virginia and in much of D.C., WPVM in Asheville, North Carolina, and out west in Ventura, California, KPPQ. Please get in touch if you too would like full disclosure on your air. Joining me from quarantine country in Vermont is Moshe Wanunu. <laughs> He's a seasoned uh, American media executive. I call him an enfant because he ascended to become the uh, the top producer of the CBS Evening News, executive producer at the young age of 35 just a few years ago. He has since decamped to start something independently at Moshe on Instagram, Mo Digital, a consulting and for media organizations on digital content strategy. Sir, how are you? Robin, it's great to be with you. Yes. I just remember you as a very young guy, uh, a, a bright-eyed kind of young producer at Bloomberg who quickly ascended the ranks there. The head of Bloomberg TV took you to CBS News in the the mid-teens, and uh, you covered yourself in glory there, and, and, and you got this amazing job You know, when you weren't even 40. I think you were 35. Tell me about kind of what the grand master plan was. The <laughs> I, I took it year by year and had the great fortune of learning from some of the best at a number of legacy, well, what we refer to now as legacy media companies, right? I actually began right, my right. career back at, before I met you at Bloomberg, I was at Fox News Channel and had the good fortune of being Chris Wallace's researcher on the Sunday show mm. there and had some opportunities at, at Fox covering the 2008 presidential campaign, rode the bus with then-candidate Rudy Giuliani, and then John McCain and Palin for a year, and then got to spend some time at Bloomberg Television uh, getting my very quick education in all things macroeconomics when we thought we were experiencing the worst financial collapse of our lifetimes in 2009. Uh, And at CBS, uh, really, for me, it's been about finding new opportunities, new challenges, new challenges that scare me a little bit. CBS was, at the time, launching initially a morning show uh, back in 2012, launching a 24-hour digital channel that had never been done there before, and then running the evening news, which included folks on my team who literally had uh, started under Walter Cronkite and were still there after all those years. 
you know, it seems like uh, the world is so different even from then that how many people in the age of ubiquitous Wi-Fi and everybody having a high-powered, you know, a camcorder and audio device and clock and a media entertainment system in their hands, how many people actually pay attention to the network news at night? It used to be so sacrosanct, so Americana, but how often do I find myself flipping the channels? I mean, maybe my son and I are trying to catch Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. <laughs> Otherwise, I, I I can't remember the last time I did. Yeah, well, it's it's pretty remarkable, you know. When, when there was a bygone era, when pre-cable, when upwards of nearly a hundred million Americans would watch one of the three shows, um, you'd get you know nearly fifty percent of the country. That has gone down over the course of the past three decades. But uh, on a typical evening, about twenty million Americans still today, in the age of as you say, ubiquitous Wi-Fi get their news from ABC, NBC, or CBS at 6.30 p.m. Eastern or wherever it airs in their time zone. Uh, so even when I uh, was running Evening a couple of years ago, we average anywhere between 5.5 to 7 million people watching every night. And just to give people a point of comparison, cable news, which definitely punches above its weight uh, and gets a lot of attention, the you know leading show on cable news, which you know I think wavers some, one of the shows on Fox News, will average between two and four million. So even the network news broadcasts, and by the way, I think the number one still is ABC World News, they're getting upwards of eight or nine million. So uh, the lowest rated, the third rated uh, show, which has been CBS now for a couple decades, was still breaking six million, which is more than any of the cable news shows get uh, in primetime. So these are still profitable enterprises, clearly. I've always been impressed that something like the Today Show at NBC is their profit center of NBC News. But unlike Bloomberg TV, I don't want to offend anybody where they just threw lots of money at it and it was never expected to move the needle. These still bring in profitable content and distribution for the old line conglomerates. Oh, absolutely. And and you brought up the Today Show. Morning television is the most lucrative. So, you know, the Today Show, Good Morning America, what CBS is uh, calling CBS Mornings now, uh, those shows bring in several hundred million dollars a year apiece. The Today Show franchise, which they've now developed into a uh, they have an XM series channel. They have streaming channel devoted. You know, Today Show is four hours. I think they repeat an hour. I think five of 24 hours a day of NBC is the Today Show. They're bringing upwards of three or four hundred million dollars. Um, oh, in, wow. in revenue in. At CBS, the most lucrative shows were 60 Minutes and CBS Sunday Morning. That said, the morning show and evening news, still money. The evening newscasts bring in less just because it's a half an hour at night. But those ads, you know, mainly pharmaceuticals geared towards an audience that's in their mid to late 60s, those ads are bringing anywhere between fifty dollars and $100,000 for 30 seconds. Wow. Uh, and then meanwhile, while you were there, you helped develop CBSN the straight to digital channel, which I did some appearances on it. And people were like, okay, you know, I, I guess for our generation, if you have a link or clip to send around, that's great. Uh, for an older generation, I talked to my in-laws and the like, and they're like, well, I thought we were going to see you on the evening news or the CBS morning show. It's still the TV delivery. What What is the state of that? I mean, I don't, I don't go straight to an app for CBSN. I do like Vlad. I do like some of the other people that I have seen on it. But it seems like it all kind of blends into one online where they're taking from TV clips, from kind of multimedia, dedicated multimedia, and then this whole other app, which is kind of, I think, straight to streaming. Yeah. So gener you know, generally speaking, so I was at CBS, just for the record, from 2011 to 2019. And one of the things that CBS had never quite 
figure it out was a 24-hour news channel. Mid-90s, you know, you had CNN launch in 1980. Uh, in a matter of months in 1996, both MSNBC and Fox News Channel launch. Uh, and CBS never had a 24-hour streaming entity or cable entity. Well, you get to the mid-teens, and it feels a little too late to be launching a cable channel in 2013, 2014. So the idea is, how do we leverage our existing programs, the morning, the evening, 60 minutes, etc., mm. and turn it into a 24-hour channel? And that was part of the challenge I was tasked with. And so, But there was an understanding there that you do need to build this bridge to the digital world and that ultimately you're going to have to figure out what to do with your broadcast program in digital. So ultimately what we did was how do we create a 24-hour channel in streaming? How do we leverage what we're doing? How do we then bring in additional reporting? And so that built up an audience pretty quickly. And one of the key comparative advantages they had was they're free and available with you know one button interface through the CBS News app, whereas cable news requires you to still have one of those legacy cable subscriptions. And you've now seen a complete collapse of uh, cable subs over the course of the past few years. You know, what's always interesting is every uh, uh, venerated publication I've ever worked for, be it, you know, oh, at the New York Times or Smart Money, the magazine of the Wall Street Journal, Business Week. Initially, uh, we don't want to call it legacy, but the staffers on the masthead of the print publication never really wanted to sully their hands on online copy or multimedia projects. Uh, that that's kind of like a backwater. Oftentimes, it was even in a different building. You'd have it staffed separately. Sometimes they'd be on separate email systems. And there were these people working in the salt mines to provide web copy while you were trying to work on your A1 uh, story, top of the fold, or a cover story for the print magazine. And I don't know when it was, Moshe, but something changed. I don't know if it was the tipping point of the smartphone where uh, the journalists no longer cared. The elite journalists realized that it was about Instagram clout and Twitter clout and that currency and not kind of uh, being on the front of the page. Yeah, I think that really, I think it happened in this in this last decade, right? Uh, because even when we were working together at Bloomberg about 12 years ago, there still was a, you know, there was a cachet to being involved in the print publications. And I know that, you know, I did some work at Condé Nast, obviously worked at CBS. And I know that that has been a huge challenge for a lot of these legacy media companies where for a very long time, you were the redheaded stepchild, so to speak, working on digital. The Washington Post, I remember, actually built their WashingtonPost.com in Virginia, whereas the newspaper yeah. <laughs> was in D.C., was in DC. Um, and so that that took a while. And then there was this, I don't know that it was a switch that flipped, but there was a very quick understanding that in order for any of these publications to survive, that you needed to embrace digital and embrace it quick. And unfortunately, for the state of our industry, you've seen, especially when it comes to local news, that delay killed uh, a bunch of folks. But I think, uh, you know, we went through it culturally at CBS, legacy correspondents, who prioritized the broadcast over digital. And that certainly was the case in 2014, 2015, 2016. There were certain correspondents and producers and folks internally who understood that digital was the future, but it took a while. And, you know, for I remember the number of times when, you know, something was offered first to the broadcast and I was sitting over digital and they were like, you guys can take the scraps. Uh, you can take the extras. Mm. And I was like, well, that that's not, you know, we need to have just as good quality if we're going to convince people to watch it. And so that took a while. And honestly, uh, you know, I think the bottom line uh, and the state of the industry convinced some folks, but it was a cultural fight internally to get legacy media folks to understand that digital uh, was necessary. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Moshe Wenunu. He was, at the tender age of 35, the youngest person to ever rise, the executive producer of the CBS Evening News. He's since created Mo Digital. If you see uh, Moshe's Instagram handle, at Moshe, it's so refreshing. Uh, You used video and audio and multimedia so deftly for explanatory journalism. I think what is so fascinating is, especially in the pandemic, as so many people have been homebound, and the technologies have changed, and we've been using Zoom and jury rigging microphones and everything. You can have great people on, and and you are in Vermont right now, and you could collect uh, such uh, clout. You have a, a massive following. What is it? More than one hundred and seventy thousand followers, and a growing base of nearly two thousand paid subscribers. You can hub and spoke into newsletters. You could dip back into legacy media if you want to be a contributor somewhere. It's really incredible because we were just talking about evening news ratings, right? Evening news ratings where there's still, you know, six million people watching a show every night. And I have to tell you that, well, first of all, uh, cable news audience, median age is mid to late 60s. Network news audience is early 60s to mid 60s. Um, And I would maybe get after a broadcast a handful of relevant tweets uh, with an understanding of how the audience might have reacted to a story. On Instagram... With I think it's we're about 180,000 now on on the Instagram, which is at M-O-S-H-E-H. I have the amount of engagement I have on any individual story directly from people who have relevant experience to the story. Either they live there or, you know, they work in a profession related to that uh, or they, you know, have a family member who is somehow involved in the story. The, the ability to engage with folks and I think this is something we haven't quite cracked in legacy media that social media really enables on the news side is using the audience for immediate feedback to help inform the story, to alert you to stories that are happening that you might not be familiar with. Because, you know, Robin, most of us in journalism live on the coast and spend most of our time on Twitter. And so the ability to uh, engage with folks is one of the things that I found most thrilling about uh, engaging, uh, building this Instagram presence and curating headlines for folks there. Yeah, but the interesting thing is, you know, when you were out there on West 57th Street as, you know, working on the CVS morning show or working on as executive producer of CVS News, I imagine literally throngs of people show up outside to kind of give you a piece of their mind about the show. It's a very different dynamic. I mean, you have tiers of security. I've been there. I've done hits. It's it's very different kind of the the flat, very egalitarian world of at handles at Instagram. And and and, you know, like so there's a group of us in a room who are deciding, you know, I get this question all the time. Like, how did you guys decide what to put on the national broadcast every night? And, you know, literally, Robin, it's like, how do I use once you take out commercials, 19 minutes every night? to give America, you know, to deliver to America what it needs to know in 19 minutes, which when you really break it down, maybe we did eight to 10 stories. Each of those stories mm-hmm. are about 90 seconds in length. And we sit there and there's a couple dozen of us. And then we have folks in, you know, several bureaus around the world. And many of them are on Twitter or reading local news, etc. And they're like, we should do this story. And they're pitching a bunch of stories. And then we got to decide, you know, ultimately, here are the stories we're doing this evening. This is the way we're framing those stories, etc. The feedback mechanism is minimal. And so on social media, 
I'm, you know, I'll put out a story or, you know, see that there's a trending story that, you know, uh, from the Washington Post or the AP or the BBC. And then suddenly I'll get a bunch of direct messages from people who live in Portland. And they're like, have you heard about the situation that's happening here? Uh, or I'll get a bunch of messages from people saying, I'm curious about what's happening with the situation in Ethiopia. And that ability to engage back and forth with folks is incredible. And then I'll put out a report from the CDC and I'll hear from six doctors who follow me with their take on it. And that ability to engage and then also, you know, I'll try to curate smart uh, responses I get uh, has gotten incredible feedback from folks who, you know, kind of view it as a breath of fresh air versus what they're seeing in traditional media. And I find it's interesting that while you were learning these things and experimenting and I think being creatively promiscuous on Insta and the various other channels, you keep seeing these headlines in the New York Post about uh, tongue, tongues wagging about staff mad that the CBS Evening News was uh, moved to Washington, D.C. <laughs> and that the bean, the bean counters want to move it back to New York and the, the host's job is potentially in danger. It seems like they're always experimenting. I mean, going back to the Katie Couric experiment that didn't well, work and- I joked with, uh, actually, the person, so I was Evening News EP for about uh, 18 months, uh, almost 20 months, which is the average tenure if you look at the past three decades. And I was joking with, with the uh, gentleman who replaced me. I was like, you know, you're number 14. He goes, what do you mean I'm number 14? I go, you're the 14th executive producer in 25 years since the show went to third in the ratings. So I, I wish you luck. Uh, we have dinner on Thursday nights, all of us. And so it's an ongoing challenge and network news is fickle and management is fickle. And the audience, uh, I think at this point, if you were to poll the audience, uh, you would get many different responses as to who they think still anchors uh, the programming because the changes have been so fast and furious over the course of the past couple decades. And, you know, honestly, I think that, you know, you're limited by the format, you're limited by the platform. Uh, it's still an incredible way to get information across, you know, in many markets. Right. You know, right. like uh, NBC is channel four or five, ABC is channel seven, CBS is channel two. You can still get it with an antenna. Robin, I'll give you a stat. When we initially got research, <laughs> when we got research, when I first took over the show in 2018, we heard from research that 14%, one out of six or seven viewers of the CBS Evening News did not have an internet connection. And that was in 2018. So it's a, you know, it's it's a necessary entity for a good portion of America still. And so, uh, you know, I think it it serves an important purpose as incredible resources. It sits, you know, they have one of the seats. The networks have the front row seats in the White House press briefing room and have incredible access. But ultimately, I think you're dealing with a situation where the audience increasingly feels, uh, well, they're looking to get news from more convenient avenues and sources like this podcast. And they've lost trust in what they're seeing uh, from those national media sources. Uh, you know, I'm going to channel Moshe, if you will, a, a CBS executive in 2018 or 2019, calling you in and asking you about the economics of CBSN. I mean, it's fun. It's laudable. It's innovation. But is it making money? Is it on a path to profitability? Is what you're doing on Instagram profitable, accretive? Um, in terms of profitability. Ultimately, I have found now that I got to a certain following, a uh, a revenue stream, a small revenue, a small but growing revenue stream in terms of advertising and sponsorships. Uh, and then uh, subscriptions. Initially, I asked, you know, folks who like the account to, you know, donate anything you can if you like what we're doing here. Uh, and that's grown over time. 
Well, have you have you started paywalling the really good stuff? I mean, I've followed your Instagram religiously, and it's gotten more granular, more complex. You go into nice kind of deep dives that you wouldn't expect to find on Instagram. Well, Instagram actually is starting to experiment themselves with a paywall concept where you can paywall within the platform. A handful of creators, uh, not myself yet, uh, have gotten access to that. Um Ultimately, I'll do extra interviews on that Patreon account, um, but that is something I'm I'm looking to really build out in 2022. Frankly, you know, Robin, the way this got started is I've had Instagram for years, as like most people, using it for my you know personal photos of things I'm doing in in my life, and then it was during the heat, uh, the peak of quarantine in March of 2020, when ultimately I saw a lot of confusing headlines. And most significantly, I saw that misinformation about New York City being shut down and bridges being closed. And I was right, like, this is right. dangerous information. But ultimately, I took to Instagram and I was like, FYI, guys, like, according to folks I'm talking to in FEMA and the NYPD, like, this ain't happening and you're causing actual harm to happen if you keep spreading information that you ha- you yourself have not verified. And uh, so started to, you know... But that's, that's, that's citizen journalist, Moshe. Is that like the... The, the the kind, good ham radio operator looking out for the public interest. There wasn't a commercial impulse no, to this originally? No, it was It was literally, oh my God, is the world ending? Are they set, setting, shutting down the city? Like, let me correct it. I was talking to my then girlfriend, now wife that night, and she said, you know, you need to make your page public. I was still private with a couple hundred f- friends and family following me. And ultimately, I you know, I have to say that I think that I had some early quarantine anxiety that I was able to manage uh, by curating, you know, uh, Fauci press conferences and what was coming out of the White House and what we knew and didn't know and what various information was happening out there. And I I found it to be a really incredible experience just to be able to push out information and feel like I was doing some service to friends and family. There was no commercial interest at that point. You know, I'll tell you this, when you have 1,200 Instagram followers, 1,500 Instagram followers, there is no commercial interest there. That's a that's a very small, small thing. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a Kardashian-like following. And so I did that. For, <laughs> I did that for those first few weeks, and frankly, thought I was only going to be doing it during COVID. And as I started to get some r- real incredible feedback, I think it really hit me a couple weeks in. If you recall the PPE shortage uh, in hospitals, right. and so I put out a story, you know, a curation saying, you know, there's a bunch of hospitals that lack PPE, and you know, I had gained maybe a couple hundred followers at that point, but amongst those followers included several nurses who worked in hospitals in New York. And someone who apparently had a connection to get PPE out of China to these hospitals. So I get a note from these nurses saying, it's a terrible situation. We're wearing garbage bags here. I then get another direct message from somebody saying, by the way, I saw that uh, note about the garbage bags. Can you connect me with that person? I think I can get the masks from China. And that ability to connect that and really make an, you know, to, to make that impact from reporting out a story to helping those who are suffering in the story and then those who can help to me, was such a fulfilling, incredible experience. I think that really reinforced to me, there is something here. I want to read from the great ink you got in uh, Variety. Too much information? Former CBS Evening News producer seeks role as, quote, news concierge. The former executive producer of CBS Evening News is among the many journalists discovering they don't need a traditional media apparatus, say a TV network control room or giant printing press, to serve up information and analysis. Some reporters are taking to independent newsletters via companies like Substack, 
Wanunu has found a perch for himself on Instagram, where he helps everyone from random followers to a handful of celebrities make sense of current events. He even takes requests to help explain specific topics. Joe Jonas is among (laughs) those asking him questions. Here's your quote. My feed is sort of Drudge Report meets Axios meets The Skim, all on Instagram. Full disclosure, we are talking to Moshe Wanunu. He's a veteran uh, network TV executive gone feral and independent. Please stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. In fact, we are on every podcatcher on the planet. You could catch us on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF Radio IQ, across the Great Commonwealth. We're up in Arlington and in much of D.C. on WERA 96.7. You could catch us down in Asheville, North Carolina on WPVM and out west in Ventura on KPPQ. Holler, direct message me, however you want to get in touch, if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we're talking to Moshe Wanunu. He was formerly the executive producer of CBS Evening News, something he ascended to in his mid-30s. He's since decamped gone out on his own to create at Moshe and uh, Mo Digital. And we're talking about the experience of really we're doubling down on the public interest. Uh, sir, were, were commercial opportunities making overtures to you? I mean, how do you even jibe something in the public interest, such as being in touch with nurses and explaining uh, PPP shortages and everything with, say, Sunships coming to you and saying, hold up this bag on your Instagram? Well, it's certainly been um, a challenge, I would say. For those familiar, uh, you know, if you're on Instagram, you're uh, you're on TikTok, you're on these social media uh, the folks that tend to do best are those who uh, engage in lifestyle content, right? The folks who are unboxing uh, new items, uh, clothing, makeup, uh, travel, uh, exciting, lighthearted things. I, I had the good fortune of interviewing uh, the head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, um, on my Instagram yeah, yeah. account over the summer. And one of the questions I asked him was, so, you know, Adam, what is the future of news on the platform? And he's like, honestly, Mosh... It's not something we really think about. And I said to him, you know, challenge accepted. And I think there's uh, there we're watching right now all the platforms. In particular, we watched Facebook go through it. Now Instagram is going through it. TikTok is going through it. And most recently Spotify is. That news is a precarious place to be when you're these new digital platforms. That it's much easier and you tend to be able to hold people longer if your uh, platform is a happy place where they can go to escape yeah, the yeah. realities of this, you know, actual world. It just so happens that each of these platforms over time has taken this ev- this step, this evolution most unintentionally to a world where people get their news and information on platforms where they once shared pictures of their avocado toast. And that I think happened really amid COVID and uh, the social justice, Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, where Instagram took a very quick turn towards serious subject matter. You know, advertisers don't tend to want to be adjacent to that serious subject matter. They want to escape the controversy. They want people to have a positive impression of what they're doing. So it has been a challenge, but ultimately, you know, you do find just as these platforms uh, are now hosting all this content that the expectation from consumers as these major brands take stands on these issues. And so I think everyone is approaching that reality. And so in some cases, you really have to find a brand that is willing to be next to serious subject matter. And I think, frankly, the case that I make to them is that ultimately I'm not somebody who 
tries to shed heat. I try to bring light. Uh, and I'm not somebody who comes in with one opinion. I'm not somebody who's trying to instigate anything. What I'm really trying to do is inform and bring people verified information in the wild, wild west that is social media. And I have found gradually over time, as I've grown, organizations and uh, companies that say, you know, we do want to be, we are comfortable being associated with your content. And most importantly, we want to get to your audience. Moshe Wanunu, uh, I want to take you back to the glitzy world of Midtown Manhattan and car service and uh, <laughs> expense accounts and everything. What's your read on this palace coup at CNN? You know, with Jeff Zucker being taken out as the company is being absorbed into this whole Discovery Warner mega merger. And at the same time that they're atrophying, like you're seeing everywhere else, the cable cord is being cut left and right. And they're trying to make this bold move to get people at some point to subscribe to CNN Plus, just like we see Disney Plus or HBO Max and the others. How is this happening? I've never seen such a newsroom be so incensed about its leader being taken out like this. But at the same time, the entire medium is getting disrupted. Well, uh, fu full disclosure, Robin, uh, I have worked at nearly every network except CNN. So what uh, my analysis here is completely as a third party who, uh, you know, has who knows this world, but not that specific. I'm sure newsroom. I'm sure yeah. Jeff Zucker has called you. I'm sure they've tried to poach you in the <laughs> so, past, but go ahead. Yeah. So um, I would say this. I think you're right to talk about all these various trend lines. You have the trend line of the cable package is dwindling. I mean, if you look at CNN primetime, I think their best show gets about 500,000 to 600,000 viewers these days, mm. um, unless there's wow. breaking news. You know, Fox dominates, MSNBC opinion programming dominates, and CNN has been trying to ride the line for years of, you know, kind of, we just give you the news, but obviously, I think watching their primetime uh, and some of their daytime programming recently, they've also edged in an opinion way. So you have that larger trend line, you have CNN Plus, the big challenge there is will people be willing to pay for that? You know, if you have Disney Plus and Hulu and Netflix and HBO Max, are you also going to be paying for another streaming package that's focused on news? Well, news has had... Well, a, yeah. moreover that, I mean, what of my news budget right now? You see, the New York Times has been really successful in getting its print subscribers to pay and pay dearly for digital to the point that in an earnings release now, you don't even pay attention to the print declines anymore. Yeah. If I am someone out there who pays for Spotify, who pays for HBO Max, not on, on top of the login fatigue, I have in my mind that I already have a news budget yeah. and CNN is trying to compete now again, doubling down uh -huh. against the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you're entering the game in 2022. They have tried to spend big to bring over a couple of folks, including my, my my former boss, Chris Wallace, who's set to host a daily show over there. Uh, but ultimately, they need to put together a package that will convince you and me as kind of new, news nerds, but also just the average consumer out there, uh, that it is worth spending, you know, 50 to $100 a year for their streaming app. And of course, you know, AT&T, the phone company, realizing, you know, it's been very interesting to watch media trend lines because you saw Verizon buy a whole bunch of content because they're like, well, we own the tubes. Let's also own the content. And then Verizon was like, you know, the content business is not for us. Let's sell off our entities. <laughs> Meanwhile, right, right. the other phone company, AT&T, said, you know what? Let's buy some content. And, you know, they bought Warner and they now, you know, they owned HBO and CNN, etc. HBO, CNN, everything. Yeah, Turner. And and if I, you know, I'm John Stanky and I'm running AT&T, you know, what did he discover, especially in that previous uh, administration with President Trump? Well, it was a real headache owning CNN 
and also having to manage and lobby the White House. And so ultimately, both politically, but also commercially, they realized, you know, this isn't for us. And so now there's the Warner Media discovery tie up that's happening. And so typically, when these huge media things happen, uh, management changes occur. So you have the digital trend line, you have the acquisition, the new development related to discovery, you have the Cuomo lawsuit happening. And then along that you have the kind of uh, ratings going down and kind of CNN figuring out its future. Now, what are we more than a year since Trump has left office? And, yeah. you know, a lot of media entities, you know, Trump would often say on the campaign stuff, I don't understand why the media mistreats me so much. I'm so good to them. And to a certain extent, he was right when it came to ratings, right? Media entities, especially cable, traditional media, by the way, digital subscriptions, whether you're the Atlantic or the New York Times, in benefited commercially by the chaos. Enormously from Trump. Yeah, yeah, from the last four years. And so ultimately, everyone has spent 2021 trying to figure out, okay, we don't have Trump around anymore, but but then suddenly you'll see his, you know, he still makes some headlines to the extent that he does. Uh, and they're emphasized on the on the cable news outlets. And so you have all of those headwinds happening. So the bottom line, the answer to your question is, I don't quite know, Robin, but if you have five of those things happening at the same time, you know, ultimately uh, between maneuvers and the new management, uh, ratings declines of 2021, uh, litigation where we haven't quite learned the full story, um, I think are, are all factors that played into what took place at, at CNN in the past two weeks. You know, Motion, in closing, there's always been this wild card that CBS News and CNN would shack up. After all, they share resources like Anderson Cooper. You see cross-pollination on on 60 Minutes and everything. It's, uh, you know, the, the parent right there, CBS Viacom, I don't know who owns who, is kind of one of these other wallflowers, too, at the dance right now. It's kind of dizzying to watch, especially as Discovery Warner is about to happen. Yeah, I you know, if you go through the history of it, there was a moment in time where uh, CBS, uh, or CNN was bigger than CBS. And I think this was like Ted Turner days or whatever. And so CNN was looking to buy CBS and then it flipped. And then CBS was bigger than CNN. And CBS is like, well, we'll buy you. There have been conversations I'm aware of over the course of the past two decades in multiple iterations with multiple management. The bottom line is this, you know, when you're competing these days for audience, you need to be able to create content, to create content, you need money. To have uh to have money, you need to be bigger. And and ultimately, when you look at the terrain, Disney owns ABC. Disney is a you know hundred billion dollar plus big company. Comcast owns NBC. Again, a hundred billion plus. And so when you look, uh, Fox is a huge company. CNN tied up with Warner Media. CBS is really the kind of the smallest kid um, there. Wow. And you know, like I think CBS at peak. CBS before it got in with Viacom was a $30 billion company. So really, you know, ultimately, competitively speaking, it can't um, be, uh, it can't do as much as the other folks that they compete with. They they just, they're not, they don't have the money and they don't have the size. And so ultimately what you've seen over the course of the past few years is everyone keeps buying each other up to get bigger to compete, to get bigger to compete. I mean, you know, and then you're now competing with Netflix's of the world and the streaming entities and Apple. Uh, and Spotify, you know, everyone's in the content game these days. You just saw New York Times with some huge acquisitions and CBS tied up with its old, you know, cousin Viacom. But what is Viacom? It's 20 something cable channels, you know, including MTV, VH1, Comedy Central, BET. Uh, you know, if we were in the 90s, it's one story. It's another story now in the 20s. You really, you really tangibly feel the boulders falling around and on top of you. 
Uh, something something definitely has happened in the past year, and the CNN thing seems to be kind of a, a coda or a postscript on all the disruption that we are seeing. Moshe Winunu, uh, I'm glad to finally have you on this show. Veteran uh, Wunderkind, network news exec turned, what, multimedia renegade. Does that sound right? A multimedia renegade. I'm going to trademark that right now, Robin. <laughs> Come back on, will you? I Anytime. Anytime for you, my friend. Full disclosure, stay with us. If you are just joining us, we are pondering the state of television news. Where is it headed in the era of streaming and cord cutting and attention deficit disorder over Twitter and TikTok and Instagram? Uh, my guest now is Terrence Smith, a veteran uh, American journalist in TV and in print. He was previously special correspondent at the News Hour with Jim Lehrer. He was at the New York Times and CBS News. Uh, the book is Four Wars, Five Presidents, A Reporter's Journey from Jerusalem to Saigon to the White House. How are you, Terry? I am fine, Robin. It's a pleasure to join you. It's an honor to have you on. You know, there's this headline out there that I thought is like right up your alley if you read about it. Maggie Haberman, the star White House correspondent at the New York Times, who has this kind of love-hate symbiotic relationship with the Trump White House. They can't stand her. They troll her over Twitter. He does it. And yet he gives her all sorts of scoops, this this kind of epitome of access journalism. She has this hot bestseller to be book coming out on the Trump White House where she reveals that there are people there that said that he flushed essential documents down the toilet, which then had Twitter abuzz. If you're a White House correspondent, should you sit on a scoop like that? Should that be something that you husband just for your book? Or don't you have a responsibility to separate that from all the other stuff the White House is throwing from at you when you're covering them? <laughs> That's a fair question. Uh, in other words, it's news, I suppose, but only news in terms of the world of Trump. Uh, mm. Maggie Haberman, wonderful correspondent, is the she is the Trump whisperer. She has covered Trump back from, oh, I think the 1980s. I think of the New York Post and other places. Really, yes, in Manhattan exactly. covered him well, right? And first, as a man about town in Manhattan, then a, a reality TV person, and uh, ultimately president. So uh, nobody knows more, or is smarter, or funnier about Trump and his many oddities than Maggie Haberman. As to holding back information like that. Uh, well, first of all, I don't know when she got it, you know, came upon it. And so it may or may not have been an issue of putting it in the New York Times since she's no longer covering the White House, the Trump White right, House right. no longer exists. So um, I think it's fair enough to save uh, that uh, mushy a little bit of news for, uh, for her book. I, I don't think anybody's going to be upset about that. You write in the book about how much you had to lament that, you know, the five presidents in the title of your book, Nixon, then Carter, Reagan, and then Clinton. And uh, who? what was the final president you covered? Was it Bush 41, 43? 43, George W. Did anything prepare you for kind of the jujitsu, the stuntsmanship, the bizarre symbiosis between the Trump White House and the press corps? I'm reminded of Sean Spicer's very first conference debating the size of the inauguration crowd. Well, you know, uh, in a sense, yes. Um, the relationship between the media and the White House, any White House, any administration, is essentially and by definition an adversarial one. And so whether it's in the briefing room or in individual contact, you know 
you, the reporter, when you're talking to a White House official on or off the record, uh, Mm. you know that that person has an agenda. The reason he or she is speaking with you is they have something to sell. It's a policy as a rule or a position or an opposition to a policy. And so they're using you, yes, if you want to use that term, but you're using them too. You're trying to get the news. You're trying to find out what's going on in the White House, and it's a tried-and-true way to do it. However, the Trump administration took this whole relationship and I would say threw it in the trash can. It was beyond adversarial. The mission for a reporter covering the Trump White House was to sort out absolute fantasy and fiction from fact. And uh, remember, it was uh, the great Kellyanne Conway who came up with the explanation that these weren't lies they were telling in the Trump White House. They were alternate facts. And I think about alternate facts so much in that kind of stuff that spreads into COVID disinformation, where it's outright disinformation with life or death or hospitalization implications. You know, it's quite a departure just when you're sizing up something as unimportant as the inauguration crowd versus get the vaccine or the vaccine will give you autism or the, the, the real slippery slope of what alternate facts have become. Yeah, and alternate facts, that's a wonderful... Uh, Orwellian. <laughs> Orwellian, mindless, yeah. uh, absurd phrase, and yet she right. delivered it with a straight face. Terry, tell me about the state of uh, network news right now. I'm, I'm thinking about the, the famous film Network. I'm thinking about your book, and I look at the three networks outside of PBS. You say mm-hmm. CBS News, ABC News, NBC News. They're all owned by entertainment conglomerates, and they're also trying to keep up with the really relentless 24-hour news cycle of CNN, Fox, and MSNBC, where it's just feed the beast. And these guys have a half an hour on the evening news, and I just don't know how you pick your battles. I don't know how you convince someone that a a terrible uh, famine in West Africa that will affect chocolate and cotton prices is something that deserves five or six minutes on the network news. Well, never five or six minutes, believe me. A minute 45 is considered a full-length piece on the evening news. And when you say 30 minutes, in fact, the network news uh, actually have about 22 minutes out of 30 of actual news. The rest are commercials and introductions and so forth. The network news business right now is in a state of transformation and tumult. They are trying to make money. They are trying to cover the news. They're trying to survive in a larger entertainment conglomerate where the bottom line is the only line. And they're trying to do all that with a sense of integrity. And I believe that all of them work hard at that to greater or lesser success. And that includes CBS, uh, where I worked very happily for 13 years. And it's increasingly difficult. The people inside CBS will tell you today that the bottom line is truly the only line. Uh, It's a very money-conscious management now that has already sold their iconic headquarters in New York, BlackRock. Uh, They sold that building at 6th Avenue and 52nd Street. And uh, they are now evidently considering selling the uh, 
whole city block at 527 West 57th Street in Manhattan that is the CBS Broadcast Center. Well, just imagine what a whole block in Midtown Manhattan would go for. So uh, that's the sort of thing that makes, you know, the accountants at the entertainment conglomerate drool. And uh, now, and in a, in a weird way, COVID has made this all more feasible and possible. Because the broadcast center is largely closed now. There are some people in there, but very few. And when I recently did a commentary for CBS Sunday Morning, uh, my old broadcast, for which I worked for years, I volunteered to go into the Washington Bureau to record it. And they said, oh, no, 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 that's closed. No, you can't do that. Um, uh, only, Only certain staff. I said, wow. what about former staff? No, no. They said, no, no. No, you're dreadful. You can't go in there. And so they sent a camera crew and a field producer to my home in Annapolis, Maryland, about an hour away. And it worked beautifully and professionally and very well. But uh, it was a sign of the commentary on where we are in mid-COVID or late COVID or whatever we're in. Well, perhaps it's a good thing if it brings down these expenses that are notorious. I mean, whenever I've done hits at CBS on West 57th Street, there's a car service, there's a sumptuous green room. I remember there were deviled eggs and and fruit and everything. It was always a a great feeling as a 20-something to be taken there. Now we're doing the hits over Skype feed. Everybody is, whether you're a correspondent or you're a contributor or a guest. And in theory, at least, Terry, maybe that frees up money for them to spend on hard reporting and other things. If they would uh, spend it on hard reporting, that would be a, a fine outcome. But I agree with you, what it has done to the bean counters is illustrate that you can do this more cheaply. And uh, I think that's a double-edged sword, Robin. That I mean, that could, that could uh, it, you know, go to the point of stripping away important elements of the news gathering operation. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Terrence Smith, the prolific octogenarian. The book is Four Wars, Five Presidents, A Reporter's Journey from Jerusalem to Saigon to the White House. I'm fascinated by uh, the the transformation at your old stomping grounds, the New York Times. Uh, Some people argue that they were perilously close to, uh, I guess, a near-death experience during the financial crisis. They had to take a loan from a Mexican billionaire just to keep the lights on. And now, you can argue that they're stronger than they've been in decades. The company's worth something like $7 billion. The Trump presidency was a boon to them in that they, they saw a boom in online subscriptions, and they've kind of gotten their swagger back. They've expanded into audio, into video. The lines have been blurred, kind of what we would expect from a CBS Evening News thing. You might well see a Maggie Haberman or the White House press team, which has expanded, do a very snazzy video straight-to-internet production. Yeah. I mean, just who would have thunk it, right? I mean, this is the new the new era, the new world, and it has both positives and negatives. But for the New York Times, mm-hmm. they just recently achieved 10 million digital subscribers at $15 a month or whatever it is. And so there's a revenue source that didn't exist 20 years ago that is increasingly crucial and is replacing, uh, in part, 
the lost revenue from display advertising and classified advertising in the print edition. Of those 10 million subscriptions, I'll bet you not more than a few hundred thousand are print pay are the print paper. But it's it's interesting, even that print continues to decline, it becomes an afterthought in the earnings release. And there's an exceptionalism to the likes of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and even to a lesser extent, the LA Times. And then you see, Terry, the other hundreds of have-nots that are falling by the wayside, hedge fund ownership of newspapers, the fear of news deserts and satellite cities where, you know, it used to be strong. It used to keep City Hall accountable. It used to have robust coverage of uh, uh, the sports franchises or the college in town. And they're just, they're just so many cities now. I've lost count that have lost their daily newspapers. That's right. News deserts, that, that phrase is both descriptive and accurate. And uh, I believe it's now 2,100 print newspapers in the United States have gone out of business since 2004. And so that's, that's a pretty profound change in an industry. And it's a, it's a continuing change. It's, it's still facing all sorts of challenges. And you mentioned the vulture capital organizations that buy up not only individual newspapers, but whole chains, and then impose severe cost cutting. They sell off the real estate. They uh, fire the more expensive staffers. Senior staffers, right. Yeah. Or they buy them out, more likely. And um, and then they turn it into a uh, a money machine. If you had to look into your crystal ball, where does this all end up in five years? I mean, CNN, for example, right now, it's 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 in a powerful position. Uh, it's owned by uh, Warner Media, which is in the process of another mega merger with Discovery. They are realizing that a lot of people are cord cutting where CNN is, where they call it cable stakes. You don't buy a cable subscription without CNN. It must have CNN. And that has always been their bread and butter. But now that demographically people are going to streaming, how are people going to consume hard news going forward? Yeah. I understand the things that are shiny and and celeb ridden and and uh, you know let my mind wander for six or seven minutes. But where is this going to be in five years? It's hard to say because the transformation is continuous and keeps keeps going on. But remember back, it's uh, what is how how old is CNN? Is it 40 years old yet? I 40 don't years, but a little more than 40 years old, yeah. Is it? Okay. 41 years ago, it was an unthinkable concept. News 24 hours a day. Good Lord, what will they do with it? How will they fill all that airtime? You see the answer. And streaming now, of course, is totally changing the industry. In some respects, the news business is more vital today than it's been because there are so many more outlets, so many more places to go to get your news. So I guess you can call that the good news. Uh, the bad news is all the economic problems that we've been talking about. Terrence Smith, uh, you recognize the voice. Gosh, it takes me to Sunday mornings. I'm thinking of Charles <laughs> Kuralt, and it obviously takes me to the news hour, which you know, full disclosure, I love and I contribute to. The book is Four Wars, Five Presidents, A Reporter's Journey from Jerusalem to Saigon to the White House. Thank you so much for coming on Full Disclosure. Robin, my pleasure. Full Disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. 
subscribe, rate, and recommend us, please, if you will. A warm hello to our listeners on WVTF Virginia Public Radio, WERA in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., WPVM in North Carolina, and KPPQ out in Ventura, California. Please do contact me to run full disclosure on your air. Additionally, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Insta, Friendster, heck, any channel at Full D Radio. Send me an email even. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. Thank you.